So this morning, I'm going to talk about what Kev started last week, which is looking at the word sanctuary from our vision statement. And what is a sanctuary and why is that important to us? And why does God want us to know about what a sanctuary actually is? Well, we talked last week about the fact that the first sanctuary was the Garden of Eden. And the most amazing thing was not the beautiful fruit. It wasn't the creation that, Lord, that God put there in the, in the garden. It was the fact that it was the place where Adam and Eve met God personally. Can you imagine that? Just for a moment, just stop for a second and think, can you imagine what it would be like to go to a place and be face-to-face with God the Father? It's a pretty extraordinary thing to imagine. Well, today I want to take you on a journey. It's a journey that started about 3,500 years ago, and I need you to use your imagination to go with me, okay? I'm going to try and help you a little bit along the way. But this journey began in the Egyptian desert. Now, the Egyptian desert, I'll help your imagination a little bit here, looks a bit like this. It's an area that is just covered in rock and sand, seems to be endless, it's hot, it's tiring, it's probably sweaty, but you're out there and you're wandering through this landscape. But you're not alone. Around you are two million other Israelite people. Men, women, children, walking through this desert, everything you have, you carry. Your tents, folded up, wrapped up, put on your back, put on the camel or on a horseback, and you carry it with you as you journey. And the fact that you're even on the journey is in itself miraculous because you should have been wiped out. As a nation, only a few months ago, you were being pursued by the Egyptian military, the superpower of the day. They had their chariots, they had their horses, they had men in armour, they were carrying weapons, and they were coming to get you until God stepped in. God stepped in in the most amazing way. You, you came up against the Red Sea, behind you is the military charging down the hill, and you're there and you're going, God, what do I do? He parted that Red Sea. He gave you a dry seabed to walk across, and no sooner did you set foot on the far shore This massive tidal wave came behind and wiped out the entire Egyptian army. You remember that. It didn't happen very long ago. And right now in your thinking, even though you're walking through this really big, hot, steamy desert, you're thinking, where is God leading us? He must be leading us because somebody gave us the opportunity to be here. Now, fortunately, you have a leader. His name is Moses. Moses, we know because we've seen it, talks with God. And that's what Moses did. Moses went and spoke with God up on this high mountain called Mount Sinai. And when he came back down from the mountain, he came down with an idea of building something, a place that he called the tabernacle. A tabernacle is a big word, but it basically just simply means a dwelling place. And this was the tabernacle of God. So this was a dwelling place for God. Now, as I said, you're a nomadic people. You have tents. You carry everything with you. But this tabernacle, it also had to travel with you. So it had to be in a tent as well. But it was going to be a tent like no other. Let me give you an idea of what it was like. This tabernacle 
stood about five metres high. That's about from here up to the top of the curtain there. It was five metres wide at the front. It was 14 metres deep. The tabernacle frames inside, as you can see, the frames were made of timber. They were made of acacia wood. But they weren't just ordinary timber. They were coated in gold. In fact, everything inside the tabernacle was coated in gold or it was made of solid gold. The tent covering itself were the most beautiful rich linens in purple and scarlet yarn embroidered with pure gold thread. The tabernacle outer layer was made of the finest wool, but it was also covered in animal hides and furs. As I said, all the fittings were made of pure gold and silver, and they were divided into two rooms. Separating the two rooms, in the middle there you see a large curtain. That curtain was thick linen, beautiful handmade linen, and it was embroidered in pure gold images of cherubim, angels of the Lord. Starting to get the idea, this is a pretty amazing tent. The first part of the room, the first room at the front section there, was called the holy place. It'll house a lampstand made of solid gold with seven oil lamps. It was in the shape of flowers and blossoms. It stood about as tall as a human. And again, it was made of solid gold. A golden table with plates and bowls holds 12 loaves of unleavened bread for each of the tribes of Israel. There was a table of incense, but what an amazing incense it was. The incense was made from the most expensive and finest oils that they knew. Liquid myrrh, fragrant cane, cinnamon, cassia oil, all mixed together in a blend of the most beautiful fragrance you could imagine. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you walk past, you know, there's sort of... Um, makeup area in, in David Jones or in Maya, you get this waft of a little bit of fragrance and you go, wow, you know, someone's got something expensive going on. But when you walked into this place, it took you to somewhere else. It was just the most amazingly beautiful fragrance. It was the fragrance of God's presence. In the inner room, the most holy place, at the back section you see there in the, in the image, there was only one object. Now, often we bandy around this idea that something is priceless. It's worth so much that money can't pay for it. But this object was truly priceless. The Ark of the Covenant, handmade of acacia wood, covered inside and out with pure gold, on the lid two golden statues of cherubim, angels looking towards each other, and their wings touching over the centre. Over that centre is what God called the mercy seat, the place where he would abide and live and talk to the people of Israel. Inside the ark itself were three extraordinary examples of how God provided for you as a nation before you even set out on the journey you're on now. And as you were travelling, letting you know that he was still there, he was present, he was part of your experience. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant were three things. Aaron's amazing staff. This staff that turned into a snake and then turned back into a staff. This staff that actually 
cut off from the ground, yet still it budded and, and grew almonds on it with God's help. There's a golden jar, a jar filled with manna from heaven. And you know, because you've been on this journey, that there was no food out there in that wilderness until God provided it for you. Every morning, the Israelites would go out and collect the manna, and they would eat that for the day. But they couldn't keep it more than 24 hours because it would, it would fail, it would rot and not be usable. So every single day, they trusted in one thing, and that was that God would provide that manna again the next day and the next day and the next day, and he continued to do that for 40 years of their journey. The third item, and probably the most important item, the stone tablets inscribed by God himself with the law, the Ten Commandments, given to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. So that's what's in the Ark of the Covenant, sitting in the most holy place. But as I said, it's the place where God himself would be present to meet with the Israelite people. The tent itself stands in a large courtyard, would have looked something like this. That courtyard out in the desert contained two large items. One was a massive, big, bronze altar. And on that altar was where the priests would sacrifice the animals brought to, for the sins of the people as, a, as an offering to God. There was also a thing called a laver, which you see it in the middle of the image there. It was basically like a fountain. And in the middle of that was uh, a beautiful pool of water. And that pool of water was used to cleanse the priests before they then were able to enter into the tabernacle, into the holy place, and be with God. And the priests themselves were not just ordinary people. They were people specially selected by God. They came from one particular tribe of the Jewish nation. And they were dressed in the finest clothing you could possibly imagine. Their breastplate alone had 12 jewels sewn into it. And when I say jewels, I'm talking about things like rubies, emeralds, amethyst, jade, topaz, incredibly valuable things back in those days. There were 12 jewels and each one was unique and different because each one represented a different tribe of Judah. And once a year, only once a year on one day called the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to go from the outer room to the inner room and there he spoke directly with God to ask God for the forgiveness of the people of Israel. Now much of the book of Leviticus, if you have the opportunity to read through it, will tell you all about the way in which the priests had to go through this incredible ceremony in order to be allowed to simply enter into God's presence. They had a very, very special duty and that duty required them to represent the people and so God selected very carefully the people who would do that duty. But the extraordinary thing is that when the tabernacle was completed, on the day that it was completed, a cloud descended over the tabernacle, the cloud of God from heaven. We read about it in Exodus 40, 36 to 38. And it says this, In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it did lift. 
So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and a fire was in the cloud at night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that you've seen this thing being built? You know it's going to be something pretty extraordinary. And then you see the, the cloud of God descend on it. And at night, there's fire in the cloud. And it leads the way on their journey from there forward every time they moved. Now, that was pretty amazing sanctuary. <laughs> and I've just given you a brief summary of the detail that's involved in the building of it. If you'd like to read through the book of Exodus from chapters 25 through to 30, it goes through every single item in immense detail, really accurately spelling out exactly what they had to build and how it was to be made, what it was to be made of. And then if you keep going through the book of Exodus from chapters 36 to 39, it gives all the detail again because it's describing what they actually made. So it had to be made really specifically and then it checked to make sure that it met every single standard that God had given. So why did God want it to go to so much trouble? I mean, yes, it's magnificent. It was beautiful. But why did God go to so much trouble to describe it? And where did they get all that gold and silver? (laughs) Well, I can answer that last one first for you. It can be found in Exodus again, Exodus 12, 35 to 36. It said, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for items of gold, silver, and clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people, and they gave them what they asked for. You see, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. And during that time, they became part of the families of all the Egyptian people that they worked with and worked for. And so when the time came for them to leave... God encouraged them through Moses to say, would you give us a gift that we can take with us on our journey? And that's what happened. But you know what God was doing? God was really making sure before they even left Egypt that they would have the materials they needed to build this extraordinary sanctuary, this tabernacle. It was just another way that God was showing them, not only am I with you on this journey, but I'm providing everything you need to make that journey happen. If you were to look at just simply the materials, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the jewels, and you were to try and count it up in today's terms, you'd be looking at more than $50 million. Can you imagine that to a nomadic tribe in the desert, walking around, carrying their tents with their camels, and yet they've got this tabernacle worth an absolute fortune? But you know, to God, the tabernacle was not about money. In fact, no amount of gold could have replaced what he gave them. To find out the true value of the sanctuary, we need to look not at the materials, but we need to look at God's purpose of why he created it. To do this, we actually jump forward. We jump forward about 1,800 years, sorry, about 1,400 years to the time of Paul. And in that time, in Hebrews 8.5, Paul wrote this. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain by God. This extraordinary tabernacle, millions of dollars worth of gold and jewels and silver and all this extraordinary 
incense and beauty that was used to create it is simply a shadow. It's a copy of what God has in heaven. How much grander is God's heavenly sanctuary? We get a tiny glimpse, just a tiny glimpse of it when you read through Daniel chapter 7. And in that, Daniel says that he saw God in his throne room with 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him. Now, if my arithmetic is correct, that's 100 million people standing in God's throne room. That's a pretty big tabernacle. And yet, that is why God wanted them to build this sanctuary as just a little glimpse of what they were going to look forward to when they get to heaven and stand in God's presence. And interestingly enough, when you read Revelation in the, and John's writing there, in chapter 5 in Revelation, he repeats that number again, 10,000 times 10,000. So we know that God's heavenly sanctuary, heaven itself, is going to be something unbelievably extraordinary when we get there. So God built the tabernacle, or had Moses build the tabernacle, as a glimpse of heaven. And we know that God then dwelt in the tabernacle here on earth amongst his chosen people because that was the cloud that descended on the tabernacle and stayed with it all that time. But you know what? As awesome as all of that is, that's not even the best part. In the tabernacle, the priest had a role. Their role was to offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to seek God's redemption, to seek salvation for the sins of the people. They were the intercessors, the go-betweens. It was through a very complex ceremony of purification that they went through in order to even enter God's presence. But then I started to think, why did God ask for animal sacrifices? You know, why did he need blood in order to salve the, the sins of the world? Well, again, we turn to the Bible for the answer of that. You see, we know that sin destroys humanity. We know it crushes us. It, it, it prevents us from living the life that God wanted us to have. And in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short. Sorry, Romans 6.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that word all doesn't give me much wriggle room, okay? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God was not just saying the Israelite people have made some mistakes. He's saying all of us. And then we read in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin are death. What he's referring to there is not necessarily that sin will kill you here on this earth, although some sins can do that. But what he's really referring to, and we know that because it's the second part of that verse, he's referring to our eternal life, the death of our eternal life, because it goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know that all have sinned, and we know that the wages of sin are death. In Hebrews 9, it goes on to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption. Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of any living thing is found in the blood. So when you put all that together, what it simply means is the reason that God needed a sacrifice, needed the blood of the sacrifice, is that he was transposing a life 
for a life. The life of the sacrifice for the internal life of the sinner. And the reason that God used that as the way in which he communicated it to his people is, I think, for two key reasons. Firstly, to really help us understand how bad sin is and how much it costs. For the Israelite people, they had to find the unblemished, the most beautiful, the most pristine animal that they had in their, in their family, and that was what was sacrificed for the sins of that family. It cost them a great deal. They saw what had to happen. They saw that it required the blood in order for a life to be exchanged for a life. Now we're starting to really get to the heart of why God created the tabernacle. You see, he was teaching his people of Israel an incredible thing that was going to happen in the future. An extraordinary thing that unless they got that, unless they understood how bad sin was, how important it was to have this sacrifice, blood for blood, life for life, for them to really understand what was coming. And what was coming was the day where Jesus Christ, his own son, would give his life, give his blood for the redemption, the salvation of the world. Now, that's not just my view. That's actually the view of Paul. We find it in Hebrews. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 11. But when the Messiah arrived, the high priest of the superior things of his new covenant, he bypassed the old tent, this magnificent tabernacle, the old tent, and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifice of the goat and calf's blood, instead using his own blood, as the price to set us free once and for all. God knew this. He had this in mind. He planned this from the beginning. That was why he created this extraordinary sanctuary, this tabernacle. If we keep reading through Hebrews, it goes on to say, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the Holy Spirit offered himself unblemished before God, to cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death, that sin, so that we may serve the living God. Don't you find that impressive? God had this amazing plan in mind, and then he built this sanctuary, this place that to a group of nomadic people living in the desert in tents, they would have looked at this tabernacle, and if they glimpsed inside, they would have gone, ah, that's extraordinary. Karina and I travelled a, a few years ago over to the UK and we spent a number of weeks travelling around looking at some of the grand cathedrals of, of Europe. And they're amazing. They're beautiful buildings. But you've got to remember that, you know, the tabernacle was just a glimpse of what was to come in heaven. It was a shadow of what we're about to find when we get there. So God created the tabernacle for several really important reasons. Firstly, it was a spectacular daily reminder of the presence of God amongst his people. It gave that glimpse, that shadow of the true sanctuary in heaven. It represented the covenant that God had with his people, that you will be my people and I will be your God forever. And it pointed to the future arrival of Jesus, the saviour of the world, now, that's a pretty amazing place. 
the tabernacle survived for, not surprisingly, almost exactly the same length of time that the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians, around 430 years. And before, when that was completed, that time period was completed, Solomon then built a more permanent version of the tabernacle. Now, if you want to know about that, you've got to come next week because that's what we're talking about next week and it's going to be awesome. Okay. You see, Moses built the earthly sanctuary as a very precise pattern given to him by God. And Paul teaches us that that pattern was from the true sanctuary in heaven. And John testified about it when he saw heaven in Revelations. I find it amazing that God went to so much trouble to help us see the way that we could be redeemed from our sin and to give us a hope for our future. So I want to go back to where I started with and say, can you imagine the day that you get to stand face to face with God the Father? I think if most of us were honest, we'd be terrified. I know I would be. The Lord of the universe, the creator of everything, is here in front of us asking us to give account for the life that he's given us. But, you know, we shouldn't be worried about it because we know from this whole journey of the sanctuary that our holy priest has us covered. Jesus himself is the person standing in front of God and we're standing with him, behind him, and he's saying, God, when you see this person, you see me. And God has already welcomed his one and only son. In Hebrews 9.24, it says this, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear on our behalf in God's presence. I just find it incredible that God goes to so much trouble to help us get it to help us understand the messages that he wants us to to take on and to hear and to feel and to be part of this incredible journey that he started thousands and thousands of years ago. God's amazing grace. I love that phrase because it's only through the grace of God that we can stand in his presence knowing that our priest, our heavenly priest, is standing there on our behalf. I'll get the band up as I pray. Thank you, Father, for the tabernacle and the sanctuary that you've created, not just for the Israelite people, but a sanctuary that points to you, to your son, and to the extraordinary work that he has done to redeem all of us to live with you in eternity. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the mistakes that we make every day. Forgive us that the problems that we face, yet we sometimes don't turn to you. We don't ask you for help. And yet, Lord, you were there in the desert. You were there every day. You were there before they even traveled into the desert. You knew what they needed, and you provided it for them. Father, a sanctuary is a place where you dwell, and that's the place where we want to be, Lord, with you for eternity. Father, we ask that you see us through the eyes of Jesus. You see us as a redeemed people, your people, Lord. Your people who worship you and honour you. And Father, I can only imagine what that day will be like when we stand in front of you. 
We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.